As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. podcast fans and welcome to a special bonus episode of Telegraph Audio Football Club. Today we're taking a brief break from our usual routine to talk to a TV presenter, writer and most famously the singer for Madness. Yes, it is proper Chelsea fan Suggs. Suggs reminisces on his early visits to Stamford Bridge in the 70s through to recording an FA Cup final single with Dennis Wise and Gianluca Vialli. Plus, he recalls his favourite cult heroes, hooliganism, and the time he hired his own open-top double-decker bus to fully enjoy the FA Cup final. Let's get straight into it now, inside the audio recording facility with Suggs. Suggs, you're famously a big Chelsea fan, such a big fan, in fact, that you were briefly kicked out of the band Madness <laughs> for, for, for your fandom. Tell me about how that happened. Well, yeah, yeah, you're bringing up the ancient history there. Um, <laughs> Yeah, for a brief period, when we were called the North London Invaders, uh, I was the singer in the band. And um, we started to take rehearsing a bit more seriously than, than, I, than I considered was worth taking. So Saturday afternoons, I used to go to the football every Saturday. And then, you know, I was running out of excuses. And then I, I appeared on some um, uh, episode of Match of the Day. They could see me. There was a big close-up of me in the crowd. So I was sussed, yeah. And... Um, I found out because I bought a music paper called Melody Maker, which was around in those days, which is where you had a lot of the uh, small ads for working musicians at the back. And I was always interested to go through, see, you know, drummer needed. I saw an advert that said semi-professional singer required for a professionally minded North London band. And then I saw my keyboard player's phone number. So I went in a phone box and I called him up. I put on a sort of posh voice. I said, yes, I'm just inquiring about the job of singer. Out of interest, what's happened to the old one? So don't be able to let him go. Yeah, he had, uh, you know, commitment issues. I said, hey, Mike, it's me. He says, oh, so sorry, mate. Actually, we could, we could do with you back in the band. I said, why have you just sacked me then? He said, no, no, could you come back and play drums while we audition for new singers? <laughs> anyway, fortunately, um, the singer that they got to replace me had to go and live in Ireland and they had a few gigs and I was the only one who knew the words and... That really was a turning point it in my life. It panned out, it panned yeah. out. So, but, but your first game, despite being a Chelsea fan, was at Craven Cottage? It was too, yeah, yeah, you've done your research. Absolutely. Yeah, I went to Fulham, yeah, I went to Fulham first time. I think it was Fulham Aston Villa with one of my many uncles. And, um, yeah, I don't remember a lot about it, but I do remember, yeah, that I went to... I remember I had a rattle 
the mold things. Yeah, that was good fun. The Chelsea thing happened then because I was going to a school in Park Walk. In fact, the same school as Alan Hudson. I think he was in the last year when I was in the first year primary school. And that was just walking distance from Stamford Bridge. And I remember one time, I forget the year, but um, we were playing in a European game and the floodlights went down the night before. And they had to play this game in the following afternoon because whoever it was, I think it was a Russian team, had got their flights booked for that evening. And in those days, that was it. You had one flight. So we all bunked off school and went down there. It was just great, great fun, yeah. And uh, I remember there was all school inspectors trying to stop us getting out of school. And that became a sort of epochal moment. And then, of course, it was the late 60s. That team, that Chelsea team, you know, I could name all of now, but I won't. You know, it became... You know, it was just one of those times. You know, it's like being around the 1970s Brazil team, as far as I was concerned. Was there was there a definitive moment where you thought I like football? Was there, when was the first time you remember thinking I'm a football fan? Now, oh god, that's a good question. I mean, certainly being at Stamford Bridge. I mean, my best mate's dad took me the first time. It was Chelsea West Ham. You know, just the atmosphere in there was just really outrageous. And in fact, we in what si- way? Well, because we were sitting in seats, and I could see that the West Ham. Had decided to invade the shed as was those days you know those good old bad old days and it was just you know it's just an electrifying atmosphere in the ground you know I think you know I mean what's his name put it much better than I ever could the writer Nick Hornby you know somewhere to go and shout and swear and be amongst men you know letting off steam uh, very liberating experience <laughs> and of course the football itself you know it was a uh, it was a great um, great great time for me what sort of state was Stanford Bridge in when you started going pretty terrible yeah, <laughs> yeah. was that was that sort of unique to Stanford Bridge or was that just what it was like in those days yeah I, mean, I don't think it was unique no no from my distant memory I mean yeah it's all piss running down the stairs and you know, one toilet between 35 people and uh, yeah I mean I certainly don't remember seeing any girls in that period at football. It wasn't it wasn't glamorous by any means. Also, at that point, we had the running track, you know, which is a ridiculous idea that one time it was going to become an Olympic-style stadium, which never quite matured. But it just meant you were sort of a million miles. But it also meant everyone could run around the entire stadium. So there would be a lot of running around the entire stadium. You know, Chelsea got demoted a couple of times in my, you know, when I was there in the 70s, when I was going all the time. And that was great as well, because you'd be going to all sorts of odd, bod places, you know. And certainly that's why I'd say that, 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 that Stanford Bridge wasn't exclusively crap. You know, when you go to, like, Huddersfield and Hull and uh, and those kind of, especially in those times, you know, it was how pretty long, rough. How long was getting to Hull in those days? A long, long time. <laughs> A long, long time. I mean, sometimes... Football special. You sometimes had the football special, yeah, which, of course, all bright-minded kids would smash all the windows on the way up there and then we'd have to go all the way back in December, like, Christ's sakes, can we just stop smashing all the flipping windows of our own train? But then if you couldn't, then you'd have to get what you call the, uh, what was it called, the platform ticket, which you, yeah, for I think for sixpence, which was a shilling or half a shilling, half a five, two and a half pence, um, which allowed you, in theory, to go on the platform and meet your distant aunt off the train so that you could help her carry her bags. But it meant you just actually got onto the platform. And a lot of away games were were, were on a, a platform ticket. So was that the sort of peak of your love? You were going home and away for a little bit? Yeah, definitely, definitely. How long did that last, that period? So 70-odd-ish 70, 70 till 75, 76. That's when the band started, really. That's when I started. And then the girls and other things started to intrude into my 
spare time. People talk about it, and I, and I certainly feel like this from going to, oh, I'm a QPR fan, unfortunately, so we'll have to promise not to come to blows. But um, I think football is a way of fitting in for a lot of people. It's you, you go there and you know these are your people suddenly. Was was that a thing you ever had a, a problem with in your, in your life? Uh, was football that, or was it just the same mates you were doing all the other stuff with that you were going to Chelsea with? No, I, I think that's very true, yeah. I mean, you go to a certain pub and you get to, you know, you'd go with your gang of mates and you'd see another gang of people maybe from around that way. I mean, I was coming from North London at that point. I was living, So there'd be people from uh, the World's End Estate who I knew, people who were living around there, old schoolmates I had from primary school that I'd never see during the week except at football. And especially going away, yeah, that camaraderie of seeing people and spending a bit of time on the train with people that you only saw at football matches. And of course that was, you know, the whole essence of standing is you chose to stand where you wanted so you see a load of your mates over there you go and stand with them and every week that might change a little bit depending on who was there but um yeah feeling of fitting in of course yeah and that whole you know what Slade said come feel the noise you know you could feel the noise and you felt like you were part of this sort of huge organism especially in the shed yeah you did yeah talking of crap grounds yeah QPR <laughs> yeah, come on, now. Come on. It's, got a, it's, it's, it's a lovely relic it's a lovely point. ground no it's a lovely ground I like it a lot I like it a lot and of course, um, yeah, you're not going to see the likes of that again. Now those in- intimate grounds like that. Now, are you upset about the redevelopment of Stamford Bridge not happening? You know, in one way I am. In one way, I mean, of course, I'd like to see the club do better and, and have more f- more people turning up. But on the other end, you know, it's not doing too badly. I mean, if Abramovich wasn't there, we'd be talking about a very different story. But he is, so while he's still there, I think we'd be all right. When did you start getting recognised going to Chelsea? Because there's obviously a level of anonymity unless you get spotted on Match of the Day by your madness bandmates. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I was a sort of, you know, people sort of knew me at Chelsea because I was like a big fan and, you know, I had a lot of mates and all that. But 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 the madness thing didn't come till quite late on. No, not really, not really. The band basically curtailed your involvement in going to watch Chelsea. It sort of did. It sort of did. And then, because for the first three years of my career, so sort of seventy six, seventy seven, seventy eight, seventy nine, possibly eighty, maybe five years, I was just on the road all the time touring with the band. So, but then, come sort of early to middle eighties, I had more time. That's when I started going back again. But not to every game. But certainly during the 80s into the early 90s, I was going a lot more again. But that was just the nature of the work. You know, the early days of the band Well, just like almost like the 60s. You know, you made a record, you went on tour, you made a record, you went on tour. You were only home for like two weeks out of a year. The late 70s especially is looked back on as a particularly grim time for going to football. Does that chime with your experience of it? You know, it, it was, it was, it was, I mean, it, yeah, it wasn't glamorous. Yeah, and, and you would be sort of, I mean, my mate said to me, I'd get out of the bed terrified and I'd come home terrified. <laughs> and he sort of had a bit of football in the middle. Because, yeah, I mean, that hooliganism stuff, you know, it was real, you know, and you could get on the wrong train and on the wrong bus and suddenly a load of West Ham fans get on or whatever. But mostly, you know, I might be looking back with rose-tinted glasses. It was just a lot of running around, booting people up, be, being booted, you know, up the arse. And, of course, there were some horrific things, darts landing in people's heads. But I don't think there were too many... Fatalities. I mean, not that should be any great uh, advertisement for anything. Yeah, at least there weren't no fatalities. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, for my generation, I mean, 16, 15, 16, running around just being no good didn't seem particularly dreadful to me. Were there, were there kids from your background, kids you know who would go to football and just never get caught up in that stuff? Did you have to opt in to some degree or was it just part of the experience then? 
I suppose it depends to a certain extent. I think, yeah. Did, I mean, did you ever have a day where you're like, not today, I'm swerving it, I've got a hangover, I'm, I'm not going to get involved in that little off no, that's going on down the road? Of course, of course, of course, of course, of course. Or, you know, it's Millwall, let's just have a break altogether, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to Cold Blow Lane, crikey, that was just... Luckily, my mate said, let's, let's go in the home end, because we're going away. And there was all that as well, you know, depending on who it was, certain people would want to get in the home end and all that and all that and all that. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, I think to, to a point, you could opt in and out of it. And that was sort of why I don't think it was so ghastly. But on the other hand, you know, sometimes somebody like Millwall or West Ham would decide to take the shed and then suddenly you'd find yourself confronted with 10,000 West Ham fans, whether you liked it or not, whether you'd signed up or not. So I suppose it was a bit of both, you know. And did that change in the time when you were touring manically with Madness uh, and, and in the gap you came back and it was very different suddenly in the sort of mid-80s? Did it calm down? Yeah, of course it had. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean... It was all Sita for one thing. But it's funny, that hooliganism ironically transposed itself to blooming music then for a while. You had people like Secret Affair and various other bands had Secret Affair, for instance, had the West Ham mob following them. So then you'd end up with another because it was easier actually in concerts to, 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 to get away with that sort of thing than football. It had really clamped down on but they, they were like, what, fighting other people? They weren't fighting fans of other bands. Yeah, sometimes. I mean, you know, like, uh, I can't remember. Yeah, uh, was it Secret Affair? Were they West Ham? I can't remember. Anyway, and some other band that have... Yeah, was it? Oh, my God. I mean, uh, the Stranglers, I don't know. The Finchley Boys, I think they were Tottenham. And they were all aligning themselves to different clubs. It all got very bizarre, that period. But, yeah, when I went back, then I had a nice time, though. I was in the Matthew Harding upper stand. And that, it brought back a lot of that feeling because there was a lot of people who... who, who was sharing that area of Matthew Harding Upper who were there every week and you got to know them and chat to them and, and the feeling of that sort of community was still there and unfortunately that all kind of got broken up Ken Bates decided he was going to re-sell the tickets earlier than, than, than people had applied for them so he was trying to get rid of all that crowd Do you still recognise those faces? There, there, are, there are those people that you only know from going to games regularly when you go now are there still people you see? There are Yeah there are of course there are of course there are but I mean the, the, the problem with Chelsea is it's just you know, most of the pubs have shut around the ground because they've all been developed, and so there's less and less room to manoeuvre. You know, those old big Victorian pubs, which have plenty of room, are few and far between. So the chances of bumping into someone by accident have got less and less. What was the when you think of like the best moment as a fan what, on the pitch? What was uh, what stands out? What immediately comes to mind? Obviously, Di Matteo's goal, 40, 47 seconds in the cup final. You know, because we got there in 1992 and got beaten 4-0 by Man United. One of my favourite moments of that game was Glenn Hoddle was so frustrated he was taking his tracksuit bottoms off, you know, as if he was going to go on and turn it around with 3-0 down. But that, yeah, yeah, with his blind sister in the crowd and I'd recorded that song Blue Day, you know, and they were playing that song over and over and that day was a really great day. My mate Alfie, actually one of the people that I see every now and then, uh, Alfie Lay, third generation of Alfie Lays, has got uh, fruit and veg wholesalers in Nine Elms and he'd organised a party because their work is all night, so the party started at eight in the morning. He's had two tonnes of sand delivered and he made a desert island. There was a Calypso band playing. They had this cocktail lounge and this was, when I arrived, it was nine in the morning. This is where we go. And then I managed to get an open-top double-decker bus, which wasn't easy, but that is no better feeling, man. Because you're waving at the people like you won the cup yourself. You know, Really incredible. That was one of the most incredible days, just from the whole... Then the other bit, of course, was that for some reason not me nor anyone I'd ever met before knows why Chelsea sing a song at the FA Cup final, Celery. I won't go into all the verses, but, you know, it, it involves tickling a bum. And the BBC, and there was a lot of tension, they were searching everyone for Celery. I mean, this is our sort of, this is our sort of Monty Python-esque Britain is, isn't it? You're encouraged to bring Celery to Chelsea now, of course. Well, yeah. 
But see, we just come from a fruit and veg wholesaler, so even though the BBC didn't want to hear that particular chant, there was a tsunami of celery when Chelsea kicked off. <laughs> yeah. The, the excitement of that cup win in '97 does does that dim a little bit the more you win the cup? Weirdly, like because I mean, there's obviously been plenty of times at Wembley since, mainly with Drogba scoring, where uh, it, it can't feel that special now when that happens. No, I think you're right. I totally think you're right. And it's not to say you get bored, but yeah. And then when the semi-finals started to be played at Wembley, you're starting to think, and Wembley to me is not the greatest ground to go and watch a football match anyway. And I think it's a real shame. They really missed a great trick in, in what they could have done with that place, you know. Um, it could have been a great, you know, exposition of everything that's great about our country. It should have had old pubs in it. It should have felt like, you know, the real world, not just, you know, plastic and cardboard. Unfortunately for me, that's what I feel. Yeah, and you can't complain. You know, it's like my kid's came with me for a while and they just presume that Chelsea are going to win the FA Cup every year and <laughs> kind of disappointed when we didn't. What does that do to your identity as a fan? Because it wasn't all easy. I mean, even as recently as sort of, um, you know, 20 years ago, really, like Chelsea weren't necessarily one of the biggest teams. There are plenty of mid-table years, a couple of relegations, as you say. Like, it's hard to, it's it's, well, it's not hard, clearly, but it must be strange to go from being a fan of a team who aren't expected to win to one who's, you know, widely not liked very much because they yeah. have loads of money and, and they're expected to win every week. That's very true. That's very true. And obviously that's a that's a that's a that's a balance. You know, I mean you're very happy. I mean especially winning the league, then you win the league again. I mean that's just incredible. You know, totally incredible. And then I do believe you get a little bit, yeah, less, you know, jubilant than you did. You know, just getting through to the fourth round of the FA Cup. You know what I mean? Getting promoted. You know, getting to the League Cup final. These things were so epochful when you have nothing that you can start to get a bit jaded when you're winning things all the time. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I think that's just. You know, that's just the way football is, isn't it? Since Sky started, since all this big money came in, it, it, it's become a very different game. Of course it has. And, and you know, it's like it's, it's basically like watching a different sport. If I think of myself as a 16-year-old in the shed, someone peeing down my back you know, and raining, and um, Ken Bates decides to put up electrified fencing, and he's just thinking, this is a very, very different world indeed. What about the Champions League final? How did you feel uh, watching that? Where did you watch that? Which one? Oh, Okay, right. the one you won. Let's, the let's, one we let's won. Go for, let's go positive. The one we won. Yeah, the one when we lost Man United. I was in a Chinese restaurant in Milan because it was the only place that would show the football. The Italians just weren't having two English teams in the final. No one was showing it. Not a bar, not a sports bar. And there was this little black and white television in the Chinese restaurant. And I sat with this American family. Yeah, you remember these things? And they're going, "Is this important? Are you in the fourth quarter?" And when it got to penalties, just like, "Please, please, just shut up." Anyway, John Terry. Da, da, da. Anyway, next time, next time I'm in a small bar in Spain in Zahara de la Tunis. I mean, the funny thing, you know, because, I mean, no egotist of any team, whatever, does anything more than pencil in the date of the Champions League final. You know what I mean? You never expect you're going to get there. And, of course, my wife's booked a holiday course, she flipping my lads. But that was great because, you know, we were playing Bayern Munich, weren't we, at Bayern Munich. And I can't remember, I was in a bar with some Basques and I think, had we beaten Real Madrid or, or is the other way around? I can't remember. We'd beaten Barcelona. One or the other. Barcelona. We'd beaten Barcelona. The Fernando, Fernando Torres game. That's it. Fantastic. Yeah, that last goal. Hey, what's they called? Fernando Torres, the boy in the witch's mask. Anyway, <laughs> I'm very hoping Morata doesn't go that way, but he's starting to show, show signs of life. Yeah, so, so that was it. I was with Real Madrid fans in this bar, so they were all supporting Chelsea, which was nice. And when it got to penalties, you just think, yeah, 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 what chance of an English team got beating Germans in Germany on penalties? So that was really tremendous, yeah, tremendous. 
Who's your favourite sort of cult hero Chelsea player? I think we we know the list of the sort of well-established best players yeah. they've ever had, but who, who have you loved who wasn't perhaps loved by everyone else? Um, well, I don't say not loved by anyone else, but I mean, certainly in those second division days, Pat Nevin, you know, was a great, great player. And that team, Pat Nevin... Was uh, he a Madness fan, Pat Nevin? Because he does like his music, doesn't he? I don't think so, no. I think he's a bit more esoteric. Yeah, a bit more affects than... Yeah, he Madness, likes perhaps, he likes, yeah. he likes his real independent stuff. But it was always nice, because I used to write for the Chelsea newspaper at that time, and, he, he, well, he and I wrote a column together. We shared some interest in reggae and something slightly more esoteric. But it was Impact and Evan, Kevin Speedy, uh, cult heroes. I mean, Mickey Joy I used to like. He was just like a great big geezer. I mean, that's something. I mean, Zola was my favourite, you know, just because I used to have a Sicilian barber who said, you know, or Sardinian, was it? Yeah. He said, you don't need any floodlights when Zola's playing. And it's true, that, you know, worth the, uh, you know, Entrance money, Zola for sure. But I mean, so many great teams, so many characters over the years, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That 97 team, uh, where you recorded the song, of course. How, how did that song come about? Uh, funnily enough, it was a guy I met called Mike Canaris, who, who'd actually written the song. So I just added my own personality. But it was one of those things, I was in my office, and in fact, Barbara Sharon, who was my head of press at the time at Warner Brothers, I was making solo records at this time, said I've got this song a Chelsea song and I was just thinking you know, all FA Cup songs are crap well, you know, apart from Blue is the Colour one of the few to like, endure because they were playing my song as the entrance music for a few seasons but it's reverted back to Blue is the Colour which I think is quite right because that is, a, that is a, 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 a a timeless that's a timeless classic Li- Liquidator too as well which they do play Liquidator a lot, of, yeah. a lot of songs yeah 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 I mean Liquidator again which is great because they did used to play that in the time that I'm talking about in when it was when it was released in late 60s, early 70s. And yeah, so my, my, my PR, who's a crazy Chelsea fan, she's American, but she loves Chelsea, said, I think it's pretty good. And I heard the first couple of lines, the only place to be every other Saturday, bowling down the Fulham Road, meet your mates, have a drink, have a moan and start to think. I just thought, that's great. And that's already setting a tone that is more realistic than, than just being kind of sentimental about this team. And that was it. And then it was great. We had a great day in the studio with that. I mean, that was, you know, Viali, talk about characters, Dennis Wise, talk about characters, the birth, you know, Zola, really great bunch of geezers. You he was know, the best singer. Not Dennis Wise, that's for sure. <laughs> and it was at this point that Dennis was teaching Viali English, so he kept singing very inappropriate words. He's going, go on, let's sing this word, it'll sound fine. But I remember in the video, I nutmegged Mark Hughes. That is the absolute pinnacle of my entire <laughs> footballing career. Sometimes, you know, when the family are out, I just put that on permanent <laughs> rewind. Were any of them really unhappy to be there? I always imagine they're being dragged along to those things. And yeah, I think you're right. I think especially a lot of the continental players, because it's certainly not a tradition in Italy or Spain to sing some stupid song, <laughs> even though you know you can't sing. But I think as the day went on, you know, it was just a nice atmosphere. And as I say, we, I think we finished recording in the mid-afternoon, and then we just had a sort of five-a-side game just to add some stuff to the footage. But I think in the end, they all had a nice time. Yeah, I think the ones who couldn't speak English as well, as some of the others didn't enjoy it so much. This was, of course, post Euro 96, post Three Lions and all that. Uh, at this point, football had changed. It had become something you could talk about in uh, at dinner parties and things like that. Do you remember a moment where suddenly it went from something that was a little bit of a dirty secret in certain circles to something people were, that was a fashionable thing to be into? Yeah, that's a very interesting point. Yeah, I certainly remember that. Yeah, I was talking to uh, James Brown a little while ago, you know, the, you know, the 
journalists. Yeah, there was a point where you bring up football and you could hear knives and forks clattering to the floor, <laughs> people falling over battles off their chairs. But I mean, I don't know personally, but um, I were suppose... You, were you ever nervous about mentioning you're a football fan? Was it ever something you would like not mention? What about in music circles? Was it naff even to... Well, it certainly, I mean, he certainly wouldn't go around wearing an England shirt or, 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 or a scarf of your team. I mean, that definitely came in much later. I think that was about the sort of time of blur, possibly, that sort of happened. But um, that's, I suppose, you know, Nick Hornby, that book he wrote, which was, you know, a, a, not an intellectual, but a, a, a reflection on, on what it is to be a football fan, I think resonated, certainly, in the annals of the sort of, you know, North London middle classes. And I think that sort of had an effect all round. I mean, I suppose... Yeah, Sky TV just jazzed it all up, didn't they? Made it sexy, for want of a better word, yeah. And um, You don't sound especially happy about that. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't... You know, things change, and it's like saying Camden Town, where I was brought up, has changed dramatically, and I don't really like what's happened to it. I ain't going to change it. So, you know, my daughters go, shut up, in the same way they'd say, you know, I can get a coffee in Camden Town, Dad, and a cocktail, and, you know, there's more likely to be you know, something more than two girls of a Friday night, as there wasn't during the late 70s, early 80s. I don't remember seeing a girl in Camden Town to 1983. You know, now, now I mean, what I'd say... I felt more of a participant when I was young. Now I feel more of a spectator. And that's not to say it's any worse. You know, I love watching football. It's still a fantastic sport. But like that, I think, is the, is the, is the primary change. It's, I, used to be, I used to think I was actually contributing something to this team, you know, in my shouting and cheering and whatever else thing. And sure, for sure, there are still sections of the crowd that do that. But now I feel more of a spectator, yeah. Plenty of good times as a Chelsea fan, especially in the last 20 years. What was your most miserable day supporting Chelsea? Well, there you go. I mentioned it briefly. I remember it was we were in the second division. It was against Coventry. It was pissing with rain, and I was in that bit where the the roof of the shed didn't quite meet the pitch, <laughs> getting soaked. And Ken Bates had put up an electrified fence, and I remember the rain was actually sizzling off this fence. <laughs> so, and it was nil-nil. I really thought with 10,000 other people, what on earth am I paying this to do this for? But you know what it's like? Also, it's like, you know, those days when we just say, I've had enough of this game. I'm never going to watch it ever again. You know, this is absolutely stupid. Why am I watching this rubbish? And of course, you win a couple of games and there you are back, back at the front of the queue. There must have been days, though, in the sort of mid to late 70s where it became attritional. We've been to one too many away games, had to run away from people. Yeah. Uh, where you, where you, them, it must have got boring doing that again and again. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, I think you just, you know, I mean, that's just an element of life you just grow out of, running around, you know, getting up to no good. And, and But I mean, Millwall, yeah, the old den, I remember that. Yeah, my mate said, look, let's not go anywhere. And so we went in the home end. And I could just literally see bodies flying out of the crowd at the away end. It was getting smaller and smaller, I thought. And then uh, then Millwall scored, and we had to pretend to cheer. I thought, oh, I'll just do that. And then they scored again. And then they scored the third time. I've got a feeling it was Peter Bonetti's last game. I might be, I've, you know, some things you make up, don't you? But I remember wh- whoever it was was in goal. The ball hit the crossbar and hit the back of the goalkeeper's head and in. And I just thought, I can't. I just had to sit down. Then my mate Andrew said, look, we better get out of here now. Everyone's looking at us. Why would we not be cheering the third Millwall goal? Come on. But funny enough, I met Steve Finiston, who was the striker at the time at some Chelsea do some time ago and he, he I don't remember the de- whether he told me or what I can remember but he said he didn't come on for the second half he said it was so dangerous he said I said to, I said to the gov I said look I'm, I just can't he said it's the only time in my life I've seen a formation that is one 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 they're all just standing in a line down the well God only knows what was being thrown on the pitch <laughs> one, 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 one. were you the biggest football fan in madness um Woody, my drummer's a big Chelsea fan. No, in fact, Mark, bass player, is very, very keen 
he's a season ticket holder at Arsenal. He's a very big football fan. I'd say the three of us, yeah. As I say, I was the only one <laughs> who got thrown out for my dedication. Yeah, you're definitely in the lead. Mm. So World War II Treasure Hunters is yeah. your latest project. How do you get from one step beyond to doing <laughs> archaeological history shows? Funny you should say, I was talking about that earlier, yeah. If I could have imagined, you know, jumping around in a pub in Camden Town doing One Step Beyond to making historical documentaries. I, mean, I always had an interest in history. I just was useless at school. I just, well, I wasn't useless. I didn't pay any attention. So now I'm picking up on the things that I was into. I've always been interested in history. But it's a bizarre run of events because Madness had broken up for a little while and I was just looking for things to do. Someone asked me to host a TV programme, a karaoke show called Night Fever, which is great fun, but um, the unforgettable pop monkey. Anyway, don't need to know too much more about it. <laughs> sure, it's all on YouTube. But um, it, is, it is, it is. Have a look. Anyway... Um, some reason, somebody watched that and then said, look, we'd, we'd like someone to guide us through the intricacies of late Victorian steam engine restoration. Oh, I know, the singer of madness. Well, <laughs> I can't even put up a shelf. But for some reason, I found myself making this restoration programme, which I did enjoy, you know, and uh, the same with this programme. You know, if it's something that's stimulating and something you're learning about, I mean, the Second World War, obviously, is something we all know mostly about but these shows have turned up more and more information that I never knew and um, basically I go around with some detectorists to, to, to the sites of camps or battles and they find stuff and then we try and find out you don't detect other stuff yourself though let's uh, I haven't <laughs> let's, let's get that straight you're, you're just going to the camps with them I gave yeah? it a go I gave right. it a go but it struck me a bit like fishing it's like after half an hour you know could be in the pub, couldn't we? But you know, that's the joy of it. That's not my thing. You know, they love it, and that's uh, totally understandable. You know, they get, they can see, they get totally obsessed and fixate. A bit like my brother-in-law with fishing. You, know, you think any minute now you're going to find that something, and it, it can go on for hours. But but anyway, we did find a lot of stuff, and what was most rewarding, things like we'd find a dog tag, you know, from some soldier, and you could trace that back. You find a photograph of this guy, and then give that dog tag back to his remaining family members. So that connection to the past. I know we've had. The armistice weekend has been a big deal for Britain, and so it should. And I think partly that, you know, to remind ourselves of what the sacrifice all these blokes made for what we call freedom and democracy and all that we take for granted. Was it an, a new thing, a new skill you had to learn how to be someone who was on TV, or is it just a different way of performing? It's a bit of both, yeah. I mean, I was doing, at that time, I was doing a bit of television, I started doing some radio broadcasting, and, and that all helped to inform... You know, it is, it is a skill. I mean, a skill, it is something you can learn. Yeah, I mean, it's not something... It's a bit like, you know, bloke telling a joke in a pub will not become a stand-up comedian overnight. You know, you have to hone that a little bit. What's the and best it, advice you were given about how to do it, Will? Well, you know, it's the same advice always. It's just, just, just to be yourself. But, you know, that is the most ridiculous contradiction because you are doing something that is not real with a camera in front of you. So, but to just try and be yourself... Um, it's the best advice I got, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, in this particular context, I'm not there to be the historical expert, so don't sort of, I don't have to, you know, over-exert myself. I just have to ask the questions I think the viewer would like to ask because I'm surrounded by experts. So that's it, not trying too hard, basically. That's, that's the thing, not trying too hard. How do you become someone who does all that stuff, does TV, writes books, one-man show? Uh, it, 
you could very easily have ended up as just that bloke from the 80s band. Like, how, how, how is that not what's happened for you? Uh, I suppose, you know, I mean, in, in all the entertainment, but luck, luck plays such a huge part. And, and I was very lucky to have fallen in with the band. I was very lucky to be unsacked. <laughs> um, and then, you know, these stupid things like a karaoke program comes along. And I thought, should I do it? I don't know. And I just want to just try it, you know. And then that led to other TV stuff. And then, you know, the idea that I could do those things led to a one-man show, which I've been doing for the last two years. And then doing the one-man show led me to think I might be able to write prose and that led me to writing books so all these things have just been increments of completely fortuitous occasions what do you enjoy most now um well I enjoy it all you know I mean I'm very lucky that I mean mad I mean music would be my first love you know there's nothing better than playing music with your friends it just isn't but you know I really enjoy doing this I mean it's a a funny discipline but it's a different discipline doing the one-man show I'm up there talking for two hours which is an extraordinarily difficult discipline but very rewarding when you get you know when you get the hang of these things so all of them where are Chelsea going to finish in the league Second. Second? Yeah. That's, that's, who are they going to overtake out of, out of uh, Man City and Liverpool? Well, they're second at the moment, I think, if you don't know. Yeah, it's, it's probably true. On, on points. So. On points. Anyway. Good, good on the history of <laughs> not so much the current Premier League team. <laughs> Thanks very much to Suggs for taking the time to speak to us and thanks of course to you loyal podcast fan for listening don't forget you can get in touch with us at afcpodcast at telegraph.co.uk it's an email address you know how that works we'll read out the best of what you send us on next week's episode we'll be back with you as normal next Monday you can subscribe to the Audio Football Club by searching for Telegraph Audio Football Club on the internet you can do the rest from there I'm very confident in your abilities thanks to Joel Grove on the buttons and thanks to you for your company I'll talk to you again soon. Thank you.